Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. The title for tonight uh, is uh, Anyone for Rock Badger, but disappointingly there was no Rock Badger soup. I sort of assumed that we'd have Rock Badger on the menu, and uh, that was the title that I suggested, because I sort of thought that the title of How Do We Handle the Old Testament Laws Today in Modern Australia would not particularly attract much of a crowd. So I guess you're all here for the Rock Badger, and you're going to go home very disappointed, I suspect. On Monday, uh, for lunch, I was sitting with a friend uh, in my shorts and short sleeve shirt in the humidity and heat uh, by the, uh, the coastline at Singapore, East Coast Park, for those who know it, uh, eating uh, chili sambal stingray, absolutely yum, and prawns. But the Old Testament says you can't eat prawns. So why did I have prawns? The other title I suggested for tonight's talk, which Ben and or Megan in their prudence probably wisely rejected, was, if you can eat prawns, why not gay sex? Now, that might be too provocative, but it's actually the title of a little booklet uh, that I remember reading some years ago that somebody had written. The, uh, the question of Old Testament law is surprisingly relevant. So I would guess that most of us here have broken Old Testament laws today. Now, if we'd had rock badger on the menu, we'd have all broken that law. But uh, if you're like me, I ate prawns on Monday for lunch, and on Sunday for lunch, I had a Thai uh, pork salad uh, at uh, friends in Singapore at their house. So I broke it for two meals in two days. And uh, if I think carefully enough, I might have broken it again since. I can't quite remember now. And you've probably done the same. Some of you will have eaten prawns or other shellfish in the last few days or weeks. Uh, Most of us men here do not have sort of curly hair coming down the sides of our ears. Most of us don't have tassels on the end of our scarf, although I've sort of got little things on the end of my scarf, so I'm trying to be obedient to the law. And uh, there will be a whole range of laws that you have broken. Some of you think, doesn't matter, that's the Old Testament, I live under the new. The Old Testament law doesn't matter at all anymore. New covenant, new law, the old is gone. Others of you may not have realized you were breaking Old Testament laws and you're all going to go home and clean out your cupboards and never eat a prawn again. Where do we fit with this? How do we handle this? And also in the last 20 years in particular, I think one of the topical issues, uh, well, two of the big topical issues in our society Both have relationship to Old Testament law. One is, of course, issues of sexuality, and the other is issue of religious war. So since 9-11 in particular, there have been lots of debates, discussions, interactions, and attacks on Christianity, amongst other religions, for violence and war in the religious texts and, in some cases, in current practice as well. So how do we... How do we grapple with with Old Testament laws? Well, if on your way home tonight, you see your neighbor's ox or donkey fallen by the road, what will you do? 
But what will you do if on your way home tonight you see your neighbor's sheep fallen by the side of the road? Maybe that's more likely than an ox or a donkey. And my guess is that as you see a sheep fallen by the road on your way home tonight, you will say, fantastic, I don't need to do anything about that because the law in Deuteronomy 22 verse 4 says, if you see your neighbor's ox or donkey, help it get it up and look after it and find the owner. But it's a sheep you see by the side of the road and you can pass it by because the law is ox or donkey, not sheep. Is that how you'd react or not? Well, let me give another example. This one's really from Exodus, but it illustrates the same point. Uh, earlier tonight, I was having an argument with Megan. Um, she was having a go at me, of course, and, uh, and I felt like punching her. But the law says I can't punch her with a fist, and I can't pick up a stone to hit her either. So I thought, but it's okay. You see, I can pick up a chair. Because the law says you shall not hit someone with your fist or a stone, but a chair's okay. Well, it doesn't say a chair's okay. It just doesn't say anything about a chair. So presumably, I could have hit her with a chair and not broken the Old Testament law. Now, my guess is, from little, the little sort of laughing going on, you'd sort of think, hey, that doesn't quite sound right. And you're right. It's not right. The Old Testament law, you might think if you wanted to read it, it's very long and boring. But let me tell you, it's actually very short. There's not much to it. If you read the laws of Victoria or Australia, I think you'd be reading for the rest of your life and you wouldn't finish it. You see, the law of the Old Testament is quite brief. And it doesn't cover every scenario. Far, far from it. So it doesn't say, if on your way home tonight you see your neighbor's ox, donkey, sheep, horse, kangaroo, wallaby, possum, koala, platypus, laptop. It, it, I mean, that list could go forever, couldn't it? It just says ox or donkey. And my guess is that as I use the illustration sheep, you sort of think intuitively, well, yeah, if I see my neighbor's sheep, I'd probably pick it up as well seems to be the right sort of thing to do. And as I talked about not hitting Megan with a fist or a stone, but the chair's okay, you realise, that actually, that, that's not quite right, surely. surely. Surely hitting someone with a chair isn't the right thing to do either. And you'd be right in that. Because if we understand the law correctly, we recognise that what we see so often are examples, paradigms, we might call it, and they illustrate something bigger and higher. Now, before I get to that and unpack that, it is important to say that the Old Testament, there is no sort of simple book of Old Testament law. You can't sort of open the Old Testament and find this is the law from God. It's there in Exodus, but it's not all of Exodus. And it's there in Leviticus, but it's not all of Leviticus either, actually. And there's a little bit in Numbers, and then a lot of it's repeated in Deuteronomy, but there's more in Numbers and more in Deuteronomy. That is, there's no simple book of the law like a constitution. Here are the laws of God for God's people. There's no book like that. And there's no introduction like that either. See, when God gives the law, for example, in Exodus 19 and 20, the opening sentence of the law itself is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt. 
And then it says, you shall have no other gods before me. That is, the law is given in a context. And it's given in a context, I can express this in two or three different ways. It's given in an historical context. That is, the law is given when the people of God get to Mount Sinai, having been liberated from Egypt, and so on. That is, you read the story and you you realize historically this is where and when the law was given. Related to that, I could express it like this. The law is given in a narrative context. That is, it comes within and embedded in a story. So there's no simple book of the law. Here it is, as though it's unchanged for all time. This is the law. It comes in the middle of the story. Now, by the word story, I don't mean made-up story. I just mean narrative, as in what's happening. So you start the Bible, and you've got creation, and the man and the woman, or Adam and Eve, as they're often called. And then the, the generations, Noah, the flood, Abraham, and his sons and grandsons, and so on, the story of the promise, the slavery in Egypt, the redemption unto Moses. They come to Mount Sinai out of Egypt. I'm the God who's brought you out. Here is the law. So it's in a historical context, it's in a narrative context, and the other context that's that's crucial here is that it's in a theological context. It's interesting to me that God didn't give all his laws on page one of chapter one of the first book of the Bible. It doesn't start with saying, I am God and here is the law. Now, I've given you the law, let me say a few more things. It doesn't do that. The law is not given to Abraham, for example, in Genesis 12. When God called Abraham from Mesopotamia and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, he doesn't say, well, now, before I'm going to make you promises, here's the law. This is what you've got to do. He made promises, which began to be kept by the time they got to Mount Sinai. They were already a numerous people on the way to the land of promise. Theologically, the significance of this is that God creates the relationship first. We could call that grace. There's nothing in Abraham, in Abraham's children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, or their descendants that warrants God choosing them as his people. God says, I love you. I've chosen you. You're mine. You're my special possession in Exodus 19, just before he gives them the first of the Ten Commandments. I've brought you to myself at Mount Sinai. That's in Exodus 19, before God gives them the law. You're my special people. Let my people go is the language given to Pharaoh by Moses earlier in Exodus. The point is, the relationship is established by God's goodness and grace, and in an established relationship already, God says, have no other gods but me. Make no graven image. Don't take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your parents, and on it goes. That is, theologically, grace comes first. Now, for those of us who know the New Testament better than the Old, which is probably most of us, we often think, wrongly think, that the Old Testament is sort of law and the New Testament is grace and freedom. And that if you get to the New Testament, you realize, oh, we're set free by God's grace, by Jesus. And the law is confining and restraining and constricting. But in the New Testament, you can find a couple of different strands. Jesus and Paul at different places say, I've come to uphold the law. The law is good. 
just like the Old Testament, delights in the law, the longest psalm. I know here at Deep Creek, you said a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 117 in different languages. Let me challenge you next Sunday to say Psalm 119 in different languages. It's the longest psalm. You'll be here all day. But the psalm delights in the law. It's good, as Jesus says and as Paul says. And when they criticize the law and and speak about freedom from the law, what mostly they're doing in the New Testament is actually, uh, and when Jesus criticizes different elements of obedience, he's actually critiquing not the Old Testament law itself, but rather the legalism that's overlaid on the law by the Pharisaical leaders of his day. And Paul does the same as well in his letters. That is, both Old Testament and New Testament see the primacy and priority of grace. Grace comes first, and in response to a relationship established by grace that we have with God, that ancient Israel had with God, we live with faithful obedience to the law. Well, let me come back, though, to not hitting Megan with a fist or a stone. Let me come back to the ox or donkey fallen by the way. What's behind those laws is, is, if you like, a principle. The principle's not always stated, although sometimes it is, actually. So when you, you see your neighbour's sheep tonight on your way home and you stop and help it up and find the owner, what, what's, what's going in the back of your mind? You think, well, whoever this neighbour is, whoever this person who owns the sheep is, Surely me being a good neighbour, loving my neighbour, caring for my neighbour's property is what matters to me and what matters to them and to God. And so, yes, it's not an ox or a donkey. It might be a sheep. It might be cash. It might be a laptop. But I'm actually practising the principle of loving my neighbour, of looking after their property. Uh, when I was vicar of Doncaster, I can't quite remember if this was when Megan was there or before or after, but uh, in the house next to where I lived was our youth minister who had the most revolting animal on earth, a Staffordshire Bull Terrier. And one day, the Staffordshire Bull Terrier was out on the road, the street, as I walked down the street, and I thought, oh, this revolting piece of work. It'll serve Lisa right. But what I did was call it over and putting on the greatest bravery I've ever done in my life, lead it back inside her house and shut the gate. And I did that. And as I did it, I was conscious of, well, it's not an ox or a donkey. Now, I don't expect that anyone looking after anyone's property is going to think, yeah, Deuteronomy 22, verse 4, I better go and rescue a dog. But, you know, that's my quirkiness, I suppose. <laughs> but, but it seemed the right thing to do. A few weeks ago, no, January it was, I was walking down the local street to the supermarket in Smith Street and Collingwood. And there I just noticed in the gutter was a $50 note. I thought, that's nice. Picked it up. And as I picked it up, I realised that five more metres down the road was another. In fact, there were six more. $350. Well, I went off to the police station, handed it in, did all the, filled out the paperwork. Two months later, they rang and said, no one's claimed it, it's yours. I thought, there we are. But... It's the right thing to do. Who knows? Who, I think anyone dropping $350 would be pretty disappointed in the street, especially around Collingwood. And, um, but it came back. No one claimed it. I'm sure it was the right thing to do. 
I'm not quite sure if I'd do it for a 10 cent coin, but um, where do you draw the limit? That's tricky, isn't it? Behind it, the, 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 uh, the fist, the stone, the picking up of a chair, not injuring somebody, not harming somebody, it's sort of intuitively in, in our minds. But let me give you one that's a bit more confusing. This law occurs, would you believe, three times in the Old Testament, so it's not unimportant. And I'm not sure if any of you have checked tonight's food on this one. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, maybe there was no meat in the soup anyway, so maybe we were safe on that one. But the next time you go to McDonald's and order a cheeseburger, you need to ask the attendant, can you assure me that the animal that produced the milk that produced the cheese in the cheeseburger is not the mother of the animal that produced the meat in the burger? I've done that many times at McDonald's. <laughs> Uh, I'll never eat McDonald's again, or pizzas with cheese and meat on them. Now, well, what's behind such a law? That, that looks pretty odd, doesn't it? Now, as a result, Jewish people today will not eat meat and milk products together. In fact, I think it might be 10-hour limit between those. So if you go to a strict Jewish kitchen for breakfast or a hotel, you might get dairy, yogurt, cheese, eggs, etc. for breakfast, but you certainly won't, well, you'll never get bacon, of course, because it's pork, but you won't even get turkey bacon or veal bacon. No meat. And at dinner, you might get meat, well, not pork, but other meat, but any dessert will be artificial dairy or fruit. No ice cream. And that's because they don't, of this law. Because I guess the theory for them is, well, we don't know whether the mother of the animal that produces the dairy is, the, sorry, the animal that produces the dairy is the mother of the animal that produces the meat. So therefore, we're never going to eat meat and milk together. And because it sits in your stomach for a while, we think 10 hours is a pretty good distance of time between them. That seems a bit weird, doesn't it? But the law seems weird. What's the principle behind that law? The Old Testament actually doesn't tell us. But because the law comes in a narrative, and because part of that narrative and history is so often speaking against the pagan idolatry of the nations round about. And because that law is framed with, you shall be holy because you're my people, most likely, and this is what pretty much all the commentators would say, is that this must be some sort of pagan perverse practice. After all, the milk of a mother is meant to give life, not death. And it's boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. It's not just any milk. So there's nothing wrong with lasagna or pizza or cheeseburgers, but it's the action of trying to mix the mother's milk with its child in death, in cooking. A pagan perverse practice, most likely, is the principle behind it. Now, I suspect that most of the pagans around here don't get out at night and kill animals and boil them in their mother's milk. That is, I don't think we need to worry about that issue next time you go to McDonald's or Pizza Hut, or whatever it is. But behind the law is a principle. And the Old Testament laws are not random sorts of things. I think also, as we read the laws and think about the principles behind them, it's worth reading the laws sympathetically. Because we often hear the criticism of the law, but the Old Testament delights in it. The law of the Lord is perfect, Psalm 19 says. 
I remember a few years ago reading the American author Marilyn Robinson. She wrote a brilliant novel, or a few brilliant novels. Gilead, for example, is stunning. And uh, Housekeeping is her first novel, which is brilliant as well. She's an American professor of literature, a Calvinist in her theology. And she wrote an article in a published book of articles of hers about the delights of the law of Moses, even in you know, modern times. And it was captivating to me. And, and made me think that we often read the law negatively. That was, we come to the law and say, oh, thank goodness this is not me. This looks so difficult. But when you capture the principles behind it, the principles of egalitarianism and justice, the principles of fairness, the principles of concern for other people, love of your neighbor, love even of foreigners and refugees and all sorts of people, the care economically for people who are impoverished or vulnerable to poverty, and on and on those principles go, we realize this is a good law. This is a great God who has given a wonderful law. And if you compare the ancient law of the Old Testament with the laws of Hammurabi of Babylon or the Egyptian laws or the Ugaritic laws or other ancient law codes that have been found on tablets of stone or in museums in different parts of the world, we realize here is fairness, here is justice, here is compassion. You don't get put to death for property theft in the Old Testament law, but you do in other ancient laws and in some modern Sharia law the same. So, so here is a law that is good, and we should be expecting that, reading it sympathetically and gleaning the good principles that lie behind the law. Sometimes the law is attacked because it's sort of, oh, it's just patriarchal. But remember, there's so many examples. So if a man is not to do this or is to do this, quite often it's, it applies to a woman as well. That is equally. I mean, there are some laws that are clearly husband, wife or whatever, but there are others that the example is the man, but it could be the woman. One law that is often mentioned in conversation even these days because of things like honour killing and so on is what happens to a woman who's raped? And the Old Testament law says the man who rapes her should marry her. And we think that's obscene and awful. But remember, in the ancient world, a woman who's been raped is less likely to find marriage. There's no social security system. But remember too, I'm sure, if the woman said, no, I will not marry him, she's got that choice. It's not expressed in the law. Not every detail is given in the law. The law is fair and good. Now, sometimes the principles are given to us, but let me just give you one more example before I move on to think about applying these a bit more directly as Christians. My guess is a law that most of us have broken, maybe not all, uh, but uh, is that you shall have a parapet on the roof of your house. Now, the house in which I live was built in 1903, and uh, there is no parapet on the roof. A parapet is like a balcony fence, let's call it. And my roof is a bit like this. And when I've taught in Malaysia or Myanmar or different places, there, there is nobody who has a parapet on their roof because nobody has a flat roof. They're all steep like this in Malaysia because it gets so much torrential rain. The ski fields of different places, they'll have roofs like this. The parapet is for safety. The parapet is there so that in, in ancient Israel, even modern Israel for that matter, in Palestine, people would be on their roof to do the laundry, to sleep in some parts of the year, to work depending on the weather. It's sometimes cooler or warmer on the roof. You don't want to fall off it, so you need a parapet. And Now, that law in Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 is quite specific. This is about safety. Now, how do we apply that today? 
You might say, oh, this law doesn't apply to me because my roof is like this. Nobody's going to sleep on the roof or do things on the roof. I don't need a parapet. End of story. But no, the principle is safety. How do you make your house safe? Electrical points that are not sort of live. I almost got electrocuted in a hotel once in Thailand on a beach, thrown back onto the bed by a live wire in the wall. Steps in your house that are dangerous, kitchen that's unsafe for children, a fence around the pool that might mean children can get into the pool and drown or get out on the road. I mean, a lot of our laws in our society, of course, are very strict on these issues. Or when you're building a church building, exit signs that light up, evacuation procedures. Safety matters because we love our neighbour. But how we practice that law may not be a parapet. It may be different. So let me just give you a bit of a, a, a diagram. I hope you can see at the back. I've got to sort of try and make the pen as thick as I can. Largely, we get a lot of examples in Old Testament law. I hope you can read that. Like ox or donkey or parapet. But above the examples is a principle. Or there could be more than one, actually. Like safety, parapet, like don't do pagan practices, the, uh, the child in its mother's milk, uh, love your neighbor, that is the ox, donkey, sheep, laptop, whatever. And what we do intuitively in the examples I began with is that we, we realize that a sheep, um, let me put sheep here, we reapply it to different examples. We get that intuitively. I've tried to give you simple examples so that you realize what you're doing and then give you a couple of complicated ones as well. But there's one more step that we need to do because we're not ancient Israel living inside the promised land bounded by the Med, Red, Dead and Galilee seas. We live scattered around the world. A holy nation, yes. The language of ancient Israel is applied to us in 1 Peter 2 amongst other places. We are the true children of Abraham. For example, as Jesus says in Matthew 8 and John 8. But we're not ancient Israel in that land. And so for us, there's an extra step. Before we reapply, we need to go across and think, how does the principle stay the same or get modified, strengthened, weakened, changed, redirected in the light of Christ, in the light of the New Testament, in the light of the gospel, however you want to put it, and so we end up maybe with the same principle. I've given you examples deliberately where the principle stays the same. Ox or donkey, sheep, laptop, whatever. You can see how the law trans, you know, goes across cultures. But the principle may modify a little dash at the end just because it could or it may or may not modify. And then we reapply. So what I want to do is just give you a couple of examples to help you see a little bit how it changes. For example, Monday lunch by the uh, sea off Singapore, prawns. No sense of guilt because the principle of unclean foods has changed. Jesus changes it, Mark chapter 7, for example. All foods are clean. We can eat pork, even pork intestines if you're brave enough. Not my favorite, though I've eaten them. Bamboo worms. A Kuching delicacy, I was told. I can't see why when I was in Kuching. I tried them, but once only. I did steer clear of the crickets 
and uh, other insects in Thailand once. But we can eat all foods. Jesus has, if you like, changed, modified that principle. But what about sexual behaviour? So that little booklet I referred to, you know, if you can eat prawns, why not gay sex? Oh, not that you eat gay sex, I suppose, but anyway, uh, that was the title of this booklet, I recall. Well, there's no change to that principle in the New Testament, it seems to me. The New Testament, yes, it reinforces many of the sexual behaviours of the Old Testament law as well. The notion of what is marriage, what is proper relationships and so on. Sometimes people think that the Old Testament law can be categorised three ways. There's the ceremonial law, sacrifices, temple, the robes and all that rigmarole. A lot of it's in Leviticus. Jesus does away with it because he's died on the cross for us. So we can ignore all that. And there's what's called the civil law. That is because Israel was a nation, they had an army and that sort of stuff, uh, and, and leaders of the nation. We don't need to worry about that because we're not a nation. We live in all the nations of the world as Christian people. So the civil laws don't really apply to us. And then there's the moral law, and that stays the same. That distinction we find in the Anglican 39 Articles, it's in the Westminster Confession as well. It goes back beyond Aquinas, probably even to uh, Augustine, uh, 400, 500 or 400 AD. It's a very old distinction, but I don't think it's right. There is not one place in the Bible that separates the law into categories. When Paul or Jesus speak of the law, they mean the whole kit and caboodle. And when the Old Testament speaks of the law, they mean the whole kit and caboodle, everything, all the law put together. In fact, the word Torah, law, is even bigger than just legal laws. It includes the narrative around it. So what's uh, how best to do it is this sort of method, it seems to me. Principles will be changed on the basis of Christ and ceremony, certainly, but, but the danger of simply saying, oh, this law ceremony, forget about it, doesn't apply, is that we throw too much out, I think. So the Old Testament sacrificial laws of, say, Leviticus 1 to 5, all the different sacrifices, are teaching us the principle that you can only approach God, well, not always only with blood, but let's say with blood generally. That is, with sacrifice, an offering for your sin. Well, that, that still applies to us. Our approach to God is through blood, but it's Jesus' blood. It's not an animal blood. The principle behind the Leviticus laws is still the principle for us approaching God. The shift is not that it just stops, we forget about the ceremonial laws, but the shift in Christ is that it's different blood, better blood. That matters, I think. Let me give you the final example I want to give as we finish uh, now is, is, is the issue of Old Testament war. God commanded ancient Israel to conquer Canaan, to kill the people of Jericho and Ai and other cities and within the promised land. And often non-Christians, Dawkins and others, attack vigorously Christians for this obscene part of the Bible that we have within it, sort of genocide, ethnic cleansing, for example. But I think that's a very superficial complaint and uh, target. The law of warfare in the Old Testament is quite specific and detailed. It is civil because it's a nation. It is also ceremonial because the priest will be there in the camp of the army 
to cleanse the people and ritual, ritually purify them before the war. And there is an element of morality in this. It's a moral law because it's actually putting to death not ethnic cleansing, but actually ethical cleansing, putting to death people who are idolaters and immoral. The Old Testament makes it clear that the killing of the people of Canaan is not a killing of an innocent people, but actually to, to Abraham 400 years earlier, or maybe 600 years earlier, the time of the sins of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it's only 600 years later after Joshua that they go in and conquer the law, so, uh, the land. So this, this, the laws about warfare embody civil, ceremonial, and moral. They're actually complex and intertwined, and there's no one principle here. There is a principle of, of avoiding the temptation of idolatry once you're in the land. There's a principle of God is the judge and puts, puts to death and punishes those who are idolaters and immoral people. There's a principle in the Old Testament law that God's people are the agent of God's judgment. And on it goes. Behind it lies the promises as well. So when we think, well, how does that warfare law apply to us? We can't just say, oh, yeah, Jesus teaches us to love everybody because the Old Testament teaches us to love everybody as well. What's changed, though? What's changed? Well, a few things. One is we're not inheriting a geographical land, either that land in Canaan or, or any land, actually. That is, Christians are landless. We're exiles and aliens, 1 Peter 2 says. Our inheritance is a heavenly land. The kingdom of heaven is what Jesus speaks about. So the Old Testament earthly land is a model of the bigger, better heavenly land that we inherit, and we don't have to kill anyone to enter it. And, and that's one shift, a major shift, in fact. We're not a nation, of course, like ancient Israel, scattered among the nations, so that's a bit different too. We're not going to put people to death. In the Old Testament, ancient Israel was an agent of God's judgment. In Canaan, Jesus is the agent of judgment. And on the day of his glorious return, he will judge the living and the dead. And what happens then to those who are pagans, idolaters, and immoral people who do not believe in Jesus Christ will be no better or worse than really what happened to the Canaanites under Joshua. The trouble I think that Christians have, amongst others, at the Old Testament war laws is that we don't actually believe that God is the ultimate judge. But when we recognize that if you don't believe in Jesus on the final day, God will judge you, and your end or destiny will not be particularly great. Well, that's what God's doing through Israel in Joshua's day as well. So I'm just trying to help you see here that behind laws are principles. Principles need to be read in the light of the gospel. We don't just abandon some laws because we know that, oh, well, I can eat anything. You know, those sorts of things, there are principles behind them that get modified in Christ. Some principles stay obviously the same. And then we can reapply it. And just like I talked about an ox, a sheep, a donkey, or a laptop, we see how the laws transcend culture. They're not embedded within and only sensible within an ancient agricultural culture. They can even apply to modern urban Melbourne, to be honest, today. One final comment. I realize I skipped over this, but it might help just a little bit more. In the Old Testament, if somebody committed adultery or murder uh, or various things like that, they'd be put to death, kicked out of the promised land in effect. That is, an Israelite who acts 
as an idolater or an immoral person acting like a Canaanite, they'd be put to death. It's ethical cleansing, not ethnic. It applied to an Israelite who practices Canaanite practices. But when you get to the New Testament, what happens then? I think Paul applies it very carefully. The man in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians 5 is not to be put to death because Israel's not a nation. They don't have the right to put someone to death in Corinth. But that person is to be handed over to Satan, excommunicated from the Christian church, with the possibility of coming back later in repentance. In a way, Paul has seen the principles of land and nation shifting in the gospel of Christ. And so what would be the punishment here of putting them to death now becomes the excommunication from the church, which is sending them to Satan and in a way to death, but with the merciful possibility of repentance coming back. That, I think, helps you see how the Old Testament law still has validity and still is useful, but it's modified in the gospel of Christ. We'll take some questions later after dessert, so you may want to jot them down before you forget them, but I'll look forward to those in a few minutes' time. Thanks. Well, thanks, Ben. Um, I'm in your hands if you want to ask a question. If not, we can eat more dessert. Uh, what's behind the classification of things that make somebody clean or unclean? Um, the, the laws of cleanness and uncleanness, there are food laws that are in Deuteronomy 14 and Leviticus 11, but the clean and unclean behaviour issues, it's not really quite behaviour, more condition, would be in Leviticus 12 to 15. And uh, they include things such as uh, touching a corpse, um, uh, childbirth, um, having had sexual activity, having a skin disease. Uh, they're, not, they're not sins. So our, our temptation is to say, oh, someone's unclean, that means that it's bad, they've done something bad. Uh, but more probably that the, the, the conditions of of losing or potentially losing bodily fluid, uh, blood or semen, I guess, um, makes somebody ritually unclean. So it's not it's not bad, uh, that, but but they are excluded from uh, the tabernacle sacrificial worship for a time, depending on what the issue is, whether it's one day or a week or two weeks. Um, so that it's it seems to be that. Uh, Somehow the loss of, or potential loss of bodily fluid, uh, such as in childbirth or sexual activity or skin disease, um, seems to be the condition that makes somebody unclean. And I guess it, it suggests that uh, the norm would be that we're not losing or potentially losing bodily fluid at the time that we're worshipping God uh, in the tabernacle, something to that effect. Yeah, so the question, I think we're recording this. Is that right, Silben? So the question is about conquering Canaan and killing the children and babies. And, and that, is, that is a hard thing for us. You know, if we had no element of sort of, oh, you know, what's going on here in us, I think that would suggest our hearts are a bit hard to this. Uh, I think we, we have to recognise that overall Scripture shows us God to be the judge of all and a judge who's both fair and merciful. And so 
If there are, let's say, in, in modern language, innocent children who are killed as part of the conquest of Canaan, then um, God would be fair on them and merciful in the ultimate judgment, I suppose. And, um, but I think, I think in the bigger terms, there's, there's more of a corporate identity in, in, well, in some modern Eastern cultures, for example, and African cultures, than we are used to in the West, as there were, and there was much more corporate identity in the ancient world. And so the idea of Israel needing to live a pure life within the promised land um, and, and uh, recognising that the, the, the unity of the community and people, we're, we're very individualistic in the West, which is one reason why we struggle with some Old Testament laws that are so community-minded. So children, wives, civilians are an integral part of a community that is idolatrous and immoral. There are some who suggest that the language of the Old Testament warfare is, um, uh, is, is a sort of rhetorical, hyperbolic language where killing everything that breathes, that sort of language, um, but uh, it, it's, it's, um, uh, there are arguments to, in favour and against that, uh, that view. Some suggest that people were expelled from the land, the civilians would be expelled from the land, but the army or those who fight were the ones to be killed. Um, the Old Testament language is, is quite a bit stronger than that. And the other aspect of it is, uh, as we're seeing in some cases in the Ukraine, and typical of warfare everywhere and in any time, uh, so often it's the children and the wives or the elderly who are not fighting, who are then abused by the armies and the victors. And the Old Testament makes it clear that within the bounds of the promised land, because God is the one who provides the ultimate victory, you cannot keep for yourself as an Israelite any spoils of war. Now, whether that's jewellery or, or possess, you know, possessions or women and children, because it belongs to God. So there's, there's those sorts of factors to consider as well. Yeah. Other questions? So the question is, uh, in Numbers, there's a story of the man who is gathering wood on the Sabbath, who's then put to death when brought to Moses, and how would that fit today and so on. Uh, firstly, it's worth saying that capital punishment applied to the first six, sometimes seven of the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath is the fourth. It's part of that. For us, you see, a Sabbath day, a rest day, that sort of idea is quite a casual thing in our thinking. But a Sabbath is a very high law in the, in the Old Testament. It's uh, a principle embedded in creation in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, though those verses are not, in my opinion, an actual law. But that is, it matters that we model God resting as part of our relationship with God and our worship of God, it matters. So this man is breaking a high commandment. I, I guess that's what I want to say. And a bit like the example I gave of the incestuous man in 1 Corinthians 5, it's clear that putting somebody to death for breaking, well, in fact, any of the commandments or any law is not within our, our church's power anymore. So in the example of 1 Corinthians 5, the man is unrepentant in 1 Corinthians 5, despite what appear to be perhaps even numerous attempts. 
uh, he's expelled from the community. So I guess the, the model would be that, you know, if somebody is, let's, let's for now just say breaking the Sabbath, um, uh, then uh, we would be wanting to urge them uh, back, and if they're unrepentant, to expel them from the church. What does it mean, though, to break the Sabbath today? That's the other part of the principle here. Is the Sabbath Friday sunset to Saturday sunset, as the Seventh-day Adventist church would maintain? I, I don't personally think that we're bound to that time frame exactly. It's not simply Sunday. Sunday is a bit different from the Sabbath. There is a sense of entering rest for those who come to Christ. Nonetheless, it's interesting the Sabbath law itself is the only one of the Ten Commandments not explicitly reinforced in the New Testament. All the others are reinforced except this one. Is that significant? So I wouldn't be putting someone to death. Let me urge you not to do that. Um, and, uh, and so... Um, and, and probably the man collecting wood is doing his work. That is, it's not like somebody who's an accountant deciding to get a bit of exercise collecting wood on a rest, as a restful activity. Um, so it, it's an example of somebody who's simply trying to work seven days a week, I think. And I think we shouldn't be working seven days a week. On the other hand, I don't think we should be working less than six. doesn't mean getting paid or not. The pay is not the issue. It's the work that's the issue and making sure that we trust God enough to take time to enjoy his presence, to rest, be refreshed, including, I think, worship, whether that's a Sunday or a Saturday or whatever day of the week. At the back. Uh, let me try and summarise your question for the recording. Um, uh, and that is, uh, if we, I, 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 I'm not quite sure what you're actually asking. Is it that if we have the New Testament, with regards to law, do we have all that we need? And I'd say no. Uh, if it's uh, God gives us what's sufficient, and, uh, and that includes the Old Testament in general, and the law is embedded in the narrative of the Old Testament, it's not simply a bit that you can lift out by itself. And we need that narrative for a whole range of different reasons, to show the faithfulness of God, that is, promises fulfilled in the new are made hundreds of years earlier. Without the earlier, you don't see the faithfulness. But on the other hand, you don't see the ongoing story of faithlessness, that is, despite being given promises and law and later a king, um, the, the people and the, the people fail so often for such a long period, which shows us, I think, the depth of our need for Jesus. So without the old the need for Jesus is not as apparent. With regard to the laws themselves, um, uh, there are still things in Old Testament law that are not in the New Testament. Uh, for example, the Sabbath that we were just talking about. The Sabbath is referred to in the New Testament. Jesus acts on the Sabbath, but, um, but the actual law itself is not, is not reapplied directly for Christians. Um, if I'd had more time, I would have said that Christians fall into the spectrum of being maximalists with Old Testament law. That is, we keep everything in the Old Testament law except what the New Testament says we don't keep. Seventh-day Adventists would be in that sort of end of the spectrum. The minimalists, which are much more common, would say, forget the Old Testament, we just do what the New Testament tells us. I think that throws too much out, which is why I've tried to take this sort of case-for-case recognizing that principles get modified. So the law itself, we don't build parapets, 
but actually we do have an obligation to make sure our buildings are safe for ourselves and other people. If you throw out Deuteronomy 22 verse 8, you don't necessarily get that principle and the example of the old uh, into the new. So, so we do need uh, Old Testament law in my opinion. Well, thank you for your questions and uh, comments. It's been good to be back here at St. Philip's and um, hand over to Ben or Megan. Well, there's going to be a duel here at uh, dawn, a duel of chairs. Who's going to hit who with a chair? Thank you very much.